Good morning. I'm Wimala. No longer Aya Wimala, but just plain Wimala. Doing the same exact things that I did before. Uh, but I'm no longer, as you can notice, I'm no longer in the robes of a bhikkhuni or any monastic. A bhikkhu or a bhikkhuni wear the same robes. Um, so, I think most of you know that by now, but if I know occasionally people say, oh, I'm not dressed the same. And just reminding you, I'm still still exploring things with you together and facilitating discussions, but uh, doing it as an upasika, which almost all of you are, students, we're students of the Buddha, but I'm not in the, the uh, monastic sangha. So, let's, what I wanted to do today when we're reading is to finish up with our reading from Wisdom is Bliss, which is a wonderful book, and if anybody would like to suggest it as a book for us to discuss together, um, I'm realizing that even in our book group, uh, the Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, Noble Path to Suffering, The Eightfold Path, we have a book group tomorrow evening at 5.30 Central Time. But we're actually getting closer to finishing that book than I ever realized. We thought it might take us four years to discuss it, but we might make it. We might make it in this next year. So be thinking of a book that you'd like to do in the book group or some other kind of discussion that could be different because this is uh, the interesting thing for me is this is a book written from a very uh, good teacher in the Tibetan tradition, Robert Thurman, but it is very, I think it's very good for us if we're in the Theravadan tradition. It's a way to investigate our own relationship to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Just looking at maybe just more semantic than anything, the differences and some of the teachings, but the, the core in all Buddhist traditions, as we've talked about, are the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So I'm finding Robert Thurman's take on these things in this book, Wisdom is Bliss, to be very thought-provoking and profound and uh, very, it's, it's, it makes it feel like a fuller picture with everything. So the last chapters are on the uh, meditation, on concentration. So the, so the, the chapters, he divides the last section as um, the last two, realistic mindfulness and realistic samadhi. And he puts right effort, which we read about, and he calls realistic creative effort, is kind of in between... Um, in between the, um, there's a sila, uh, our ethical, moral behavior is, is uh, for wisdom is first, and also it ends up as we go around the, the wheel all the time, we keep coming back and deepening in every area. And then, um, then our ethical behavior, our ethical conduct, and then he puts a realistic creative effort kind of in that area. And we often see it grouped with meditation, right effort. So that's the right effort in terms of prepping our mind and having our mind pure and clear 
a four-hour practice of concentration and mindfulness. So I want to read a little bit from Realistic Mindfulness and then Realistic Samadhi. And Samadhi is that uh, real mental stability, that one-pointed... It's called sometimes one-pointed focus or concentration. But I I really like to talk about it as... uh, I always like to use uh, stability of the mind. So it's mindfulness is helping us get things clear and to see clearly and to see the world without all of the veils that uh, we have in front of our eyes, in front of our heart. And it's preparation for this deeper concentration, this deeper stability of mind. So I'll read a little bit, hopefully today, can read a little bit from both of these. So chapter 8 is realistic mindfulness. Remember he's using, Robert Thurman uses realistic instead of when we talk about right, right view or right mindfulness, right sati. Uh, He uses the term realistic, which I think is a great translation. Bhante G uses uh, harmonious, which also is, I think, really good. Gets away from the duality, right implies there's wrong and uh, this is this is realistic. So it's real, and that's the way we always approach the Buddha's teachings, that we're looking to see clearly the way things really are, that really are in nature, really are, you know, in the in this this world that we're in. So realistic mindfulness. The super education in mind begins when you when your creativity flows inward into the subtlest recesses of your mind this can be called mindfulness forms of which have become extraordinarily popular around the world the english mindfulness comes from the sanskrit smriti or sat or the pali is sati which actually means memory Among the eight branches of the path, it is the seventh, the beginning of the third supereducation. It is the seventh, the beginning of the third supereducation, the supereducation in concentration, samadhi, or mind, citta. Realistic remembering and realistic concentration make up that third supereducation, with what we discussed in the last chapter, realistic creativity as a spark. And you'll remember his realistic uh, creative effort, and he talks about our effort being uh, a form of creativity, which I really like. Together, they parallel the fifth of the six transcendent virtues, contemplation. which partners with the six and most important transcendent transcendent virtue, wisdom. The transformative intellectual wisdom attained by analytical meditation, which is uh, what we call vipassana or insight meditation, cannot drill down far enough to change unconscious, misknowing habit patterns without the energy focusing of concentration, contemplation, non-discursive meditation, or realization. 
So that's what we call bhavana, samadhi, uh, jhana, samatha, and bhavana. So those are those deeper nonverbal, uh, I like his definition, those, the, we want to change the unconscious, misknowing habit patterns. Without the energy, it, it can't be done. We can't, vipassana, mindfulness, can't get, isn't drilled down deep enough in our consciousness to change unconscious, misknowing habit patterns. We have to have that energy focusing of concentration, non-discursive meditation or realization. So beyond getting deep beyond our thinking, usually our constant stream of remembering gets stuck in the past as we go into reveries and our memories of what happened to us at this or that time, and the same type of mental scattering occurs in anticipating things where we imagine things that might happen in the future. We remember the future. So imagining what might happen is remembering the future. Wow. When we take focus away from remembering the past and anticipating the future, we can remember to be more and more aware and mindful of what is going on in the present. When we do this, Indeed, we can gradually become lucidly aware. To look at it from a different perspective, we use a term, lucid dreaming, when we have learned to be self-aware during dreams without waking up. When we gain skill in mindfulness awareness during our waking hours, we are developing lucid waking finding much more vivid detail in every moment. If we take stock of how we spend our time doing things while our mind multitasks and thinks about other things, scattering itself around, we are hardly aware of what we're actually doing in the moment. That could be called mindless waking or sleep waking. There are traditionally four focuses of mindfulness of remembering the present. So remembering to be in the present. Number one, these are the four focuses of mindfulness as he describes them. One, remembering the body. Two, remembering the physical and mental sensations. Three, remembering the mind. And four, remembering mental objects. It's all everything else, the, all the mental objects that are consciousness and everything. So these are the same. As, that's what we call the four foundations of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. So that's all going on. Remembering the present is all of that. You can practice the first round just to become aware of them, without looking right away at their nature. Once you become lucid about what is there, you discover that the body is funky, the sensations are mostly stressful, the mind is ever-changing and actually unfindable, and mental objects are coreless, insubstantial, illusory, and relative. Realistic mindfulness constantly looks realistically with the inner eye at body, sensations, mind, and objects. That's a wonderful description. 
And it's, it's all from the Satipatthana Sutta. Popularly in the West, people think of mindfulness as being mainly one aspect of the mindfulness of the body, which is mindfulness of the breath, breath being considered the bridge between mind and body. So when you first do mindfulness practice, you get a little nervous because you realize there's a whole cacophony going on inside your mind. But then once you get to see it more comprehensively and you can move around among your thoughts, you develop a little bit of critical awareness and you can change channels. You have a sort of clicker. You finally get a remote control in your own mind and you can click from one channel to another. You can look at it from another angle and get another perspective on it. And you can be more free about your reactivity. When someone presses your button, you can either react or not react because you're not a slave of that thought. You can shift away from it. It's wonderful. <laughs> so he's talking, you know, we talk about, uh, uh, I always think of Tara Brock and rain when we investigate something that arises. Recognition, acceptance, investigation, and then uh, uh not not taking it as the self, not not uh, identifying that as who we are. Um, mindfulness, and he's talking about the clicker, the remote control. So I kind of like that. The clicker lets you go from channel to channel, and you can look at it from another angle and get another perspective on it, and you can be more free about your reaction. Your reaction. That's what we're always talking about in mindfulness practice. Sometimes just that few seconds of not reacting to something, just a few seconds to allow yourself to be aware of what's going on within you so you don't react with a harsh word or anger or a strong emotional response, but you can respond to what's actually present you know you don't you may not need to respond at all verbally or physically mindfulness is a technique developed by centuries of mind science in practice the most important thing determining the quality of your life is your mind and your own ability to master your mind you can be in the best environment and something bothers you emotionally and you're miserable you can be pretty happy, even in adversity. Mindfulness gives you a much bigger range of choice and ability to create gaps and pause your reactions so you can choose to move this way or that way. It's really very important. And if you do practice mindfulness, I'm sure that the, the uh, experience of the, co of the last two years with the COVID in and out of you know, feeling we're getting, everything's getting better and going right back into feeling things are getting worse. I know if you're a meditator and you practice mindfulness, it's, it's probably been a good uh, therapy for you. It's probably been a big help. Sometimes it may feel like it's not helping, but if you keep it up, you know, you know it will. A little bit more from this chapter, and then I'm going to read from um, the, the, the Samadhi. 
One practice is to heighten awareness of the inner complexity that normally functions automatically, the workings of the body, for example. This is how most people who get into mindfulness do it, performing a non-judgmental inner opening of awareness as to what is actually going on inside the body and mind. The natural deeper step of critically seeing through your body's pseudo-purity, your mental sensations pseudo-pleasantness, your seemingly static, ego-centered, mind pseudo-static fixity, and your pseudo-solid objects of mental experience. Seeing through all that happens when you go beyond the soothing calm of non-judgmental awareness and becoming lucid and naturally naturally begin to transform. This is a deep meditation in which the insights from learning and critical investigation are ready to be catapulted by somatic total concentration, which is the next stage, to lift you out of the coarse body-mind world into the subtle space of natural reality bliss. Now, that's a mouthful, but it's a really beautiful way of saying that mindfulness practice is very deep, but it's what's taking us into even more subtler uh, states where we're, we can we go down. I always say going down because I just feel like it's the constant settling, you know, of the turbulent water, like the water, if you're in a pond, the least thing can disturb the, uh, you know, the, the movement of the water so it can shake things up and the water can become muddy. So as we settle down, as everything settles down and becomes uh, calmer, then that's when I talk about going down. It's not a not, it's less a direction and more just <laughs> the the ad, uh, where where our mind's going. It's just settling. So this is mindfulness. It's a deep meditation. He's not saying that it's something light or uh, 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 not real, but it is leading then also to that deeper non-thinking stage. which he calls the subtle space of natural reality bliss. Buddhist psychological science starts from the second noble truth or friendly fact, which focuses on the diagnosis of the cause of suffering. The deep cause we know is misknowing ignorance, the ignorance of misknowing. Misknowing ignorance causes unawake beings to imagine their selves and their world as being other than what they really are. Such beings, I still am somewhat one of them, so don't feel put down. Such beings are like the hero Neo in the film The Matrix, who thinks he, he is a certain body running around in a certain world. When he is caused to remember, become self-aware, as wakened by technical intervention, he, real, he realizes that he is actually an unconscious, dream-trapped, embryo-like grown-up trapped in a slimy test-tube prison. 
Luckily, his already awake revolutionary new friends save him as his body gets flushed out to die in a sewer due to his crime of having become unmanageably self-aware. So if you're a fan of the Matrix, uh, many people talk about that in, in, term, in Buddhist terms, and I know there's a new one, a new one out, like uh, Matrix number four or something. I haven't seen it, but uh, I think I think the analogies with the Matrix are pretty pretty uh, profound. This is a beautiful illustration of the initial awakening from misknowing into the gradual learning of mindful knowing so that it we often talk about the the reason for suffering is uh, attachment craving and beneath that craving because it's a craving for stability and permanency and and uh, self things to make us feel like we are we identify with things the root of that is this unknowing ignorance so beneath that craving, that attachment, that inability to let go, is uh, is misknowing ignorance. So if we if we have knowledge at that basic, most basic level, not instead of ignorance, we can we can we can breathe and not be uh, attached. Once you misknow yourself, this is once you are ignorant about yourself and think of yourself as an alienated, separate being surrounded by the misknown immensity of an absolutely other world. You crave to lose that separateness by uniting with that world. This may look like you are swallowing in as much as possible or being swallowed totally by it. Lust driving you to avoid alienation and fear driving you to avoid contact. At the same time, you may fear both not being able to swallow it all and also being swallowed by it. So you rage against it and lose yourself in hatred, anger, and aggression. The original misknowing of the separation, of course, is the root of both the lust and the hate. The original misknowing of the separation is the root of both the lust and the hate. Oh, it's wonderful. His phrasing, his words are wonderful. When the fully awakened Prince Siddhartha became Shakyamuni Buddha and taught his first human disciples, his five former self-mortifying yogic companions, he emphasized lustful craving as the cause of as the cause of suffering, in order to shock them. They thought they were torturing themselves to get rid of craving, but they were actually doing the opposite, craving escape from reality, seeking a separate state of being by retreating into the illusory experience of the totally misknown, misimagined, static, separate, absolute self thought to be disconnected from the bothersome relative world. Wow. <laughs> Remember the Buddha and his, his five companions? Oh, there's a squirrel who wants to join us, I think. Um, 
the five uh, other the, his they were actually became his students. He was kind of the leader of the group of five, and they were their practice was self mortification. It was to get rid of the self by uh, by punishing the body, punishing the body as much as it could stand. This is a beautiful description of that. So I want to read this paragraph again. So he's talking about these, and, and these are the, the very, usually very well educated, the high, sometimes the highest class. These were the, um, those, they would be out as uh, sages and wandering the land and were mendicants. And, um, the, they were, the Buddha was practicing at this point, this practice of self mortification. And these, his five former companions were doing the same thing. And at first, when the Buddha realized that this was not the way to enlightenment, this was just the way to death, uh, they they wanted to reject him because they thought he had he had kind of caved in and accepted some food to eat. And uh, that was actually when he started to recognize, and that's when he achieved enlightenment. He realized that this was the middle path, and this is a way of moderation, not of self uh, self punishment. So I'm going to read that paragraph. It's just so beautifully written. When the fully awakened Prince Siddhartha became Shakyamuni, Shakyamuni Buddha, that's right after his uh, enlightenment, and taught his first human disciples, his five former self-mortifying yogic companions, he emphasized lustful cravings as the cause of suffering in order to shock them. They thought they were torturing themselves to get rid of craving, but they were actually doing the opposite, craving escape from reality, seeking a separate state of being by retreating into the illusory experience of the totally misknown, misimagined, static, separate, absolute self thought to be disconnected from the bothersome relative world. So they thought they were trying to release this self uh, by destroying the, the body through all of this uh, kind of torturing their body. All of the deprivate, they wanted to deprive the body of all sense pleasure, which included eating and, uh, you know, being able to function as a human body. When Siddhartha attained enlightenment, he lightened up. And so here's Robert Thurman. He goes from this incredible prose to just being very kind of, just like we would talk about it. He lightened up, felt both body and mind to be really well. To be precise, he became Nibbana, all free, all bliss, all the time, everywhere, as everything. He did not fail to be himself. This is a beautiful sentence. He did not fail to be himself. He just came to know what he had really been all the time. He expanded from identifying himself as a static self separate from all time and space, full of beings and things. So he expanded from identifying himself as a static self, 
a self separate from all time and space that's full of beings and things. And the transformation was to identifying himself as still himself, astonishingly just forever completely one with the whole time and space full of beings and things. That is to say, although this was inconceivable in normal terms, he came to be all other beings and things, just as much as continuing to be himself. I love that too. So he didn't, he didn't, when we talk about no self, I think Robert Thurman's being real clear about what we really are talking about. So the Buddha was himself, but he also came to be all other beings and things, just as much as he continued to be himself. So that's the difference. We're not giving up the self. We are just expanding the self to include all beings. Okay. I think this is so beautiful, this chapter. And it's not very long, but I really would like to read more of it. So we'll wait to do samadhi. Uh, we won't start samadhi because I think this realistical, realistic mindfulness and then realistic samadhi is just a beautiful, uh, beautiful conclusion to our exploration of this book. So it's hard to not read all of it. So we this this won't take long, but we'll read more from Realistic Mindfulness uh, next time we meet. And hopefully that's Tuesday. I've been planning a trip to uh, Tennessee to see my mom, but uh, waiting uh, the waiting a little bit because of uh, some plans my brother has. So um, I'll be doing it, but I'll let you know. But it looks like right now I'm staying around for a while. So I'm sorry we didn't meditate today. So why don't we just end with a very short practice. This beautiful reading can really hold us for the day, I think. So, yes, Eva, good to see you. And she says, my heart swells to see so many people sitting together. And I, it mind us too. So, why don't we just spend a few minutes before we get on with our days. If you can, continue to sit. But just, uh, just be in that meditation posture. Just be with the breath. Let the body breathe and just be aware of it. May we all be free of fear and be free mentally of any enemies. May we live with peace. May we send that 
loving kindness out to all other beings. May all beings be free from fear and also free from hunger and thirst and effects of climate change. May all beings be able to care for themselves or be lovingly cared for. May everything we do and say and think today be done not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of all beings everywhere. And that's, that's what we're all working towards, is to see ourselves as just part of all of that. Everything we do for ourselves, we do for all others and for the earth, for this universe. So keep sitting if you can. Uh, we have a Dhammapada class here, sit here, but, uh, coming from Zoom from Blue Lotus um, shortly. And I will be with you Tuesday. If I'm not here Tuesday morning, I will post something ahead of time. But I'm planning on being here. Thank you. Have a beautiful day.